Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Death on Ocean Boulevard. On the morning of July 13, 2011, a young woman was found hanging from the balcony of an historic mansion in Coronado, California. She was naked. Her feet were bound her hands tied behind her back, and a gag was in her mouth. Suicide? Perhaps. Murder staged to look like suicide? Maybe. To help us sort out the mystery is award-winning journalist and author of Death on Ocean Boulevard, Caitlin Rother. Welcome to Murder Most Foul, Caitlin. Hi, thanks for having me on. To start with, um, in, as I said, in most of the books I've done, most of the stories I've done, it's either a whodunit, a why done it. The best I can describe this is a how done it. And a who done it. And a who. That's in there. And a why. And a why well, done it. Why, <laughs> why, why goes with how? Because again, we're, we're tipping. We know why it's a how uh, and why it's confusing. And also, I'm sure the, word, the use of the word death uh, is important rather than murder because yes, absolutely. Uh, we don't know. I mean, right. at this point, we can, right. and it, by the end, the audience can decide which side they're going to, and that's one of the discussions I'd love to have with you is what, where you come down after all this, you know, involvement and in research. No you, position. <laughs> good, good, good. Stay in neutral. I'm a, good. I'm a journalist. So if I'm, I can I'm, say, if I can say, I believe this, would, would you then counter it just with some, you know, some debate? Well, I, I am fine with presenting what other people say. I, I just am not taking a position because frankly, and this is fine to use. I mean, I don't feel convinced strongly one way or the other. There's just too many unanswered questions and too many things that don't make sense. And, and I will say one thing I, I do take a position on is this was a staged scene. So it was either staged, it was either a suicide staged as a homicide or a homicide staged as a suicide because there are, like I said, just too many things forensically that just don't make sense. And I'll, I'll point a few of those out to you and you can, you can, you can elaborate okay. on them. Again, okay. I've read the book once through, which I usually do. And then I go back to my dog-eared pages and look <laughs> at sections that, because again, one of the things we certainly can talk about, but a lot of these have ancillary, not ancillary people, but we can go out to the sisters and the uncles and the cousins and the parents, <laughs> which is fine. But in the book, it's great, but it gets confusing yeah. audio-wise. So I'm going to probably stick to uh, the two people who died the okay. two brothers, the two sisters. Uh huh. Well, there's three yeah. sisters, but okay. Yes, I'm sorry, but the, <laughs> the Nina Dina uh, pair. Oh, those sisters. Okay, those, yes. I'm sorry, those sisters. 
there's a lot of sisters. There's a lot of sisters. See, that's what I'm saying. So we'll, we'll probably, okay. so let's start with, you didn't cover this, you know, it's one, not one of these stories that was covered way after the fact. You were involved while it was going on. Is that correct? I started following this case from day one. Yes. I live nearby. Um, it's in the San Diego County area. Uh, Coronado is an island, so it's part of San Diego County, but it's not part of the city of San Diego, but it's, you know, 20 minutes from my house. So, <clears throat> yeah, I was watching the news and and I started collecting, you know, the autopsy reports. And I did try when I when I write a book like this, when I hope to write a book like this, I always, you know, I was a news reporter, an investigative news reporter for 19 years for news for daily newspapers, um, major metropolitan dailies. And I still carry that same approach with me when I can to go, you know, I was at the trial, you know, in 2018, jumping ahead. I was there every single day. I was the only journalist who was there every day. The, the working media had other things to cover. They couldn't be there every day. So I was not allowed to go, though, to the first news conference or the second one. So I do a much more in-depth job than the reporters. And it's not their fault. They have other things they have to do. But I was not treated equally <laughs> by the sheriff's department. So um, when you say, was I involved? I sure tried. And I managed to get all more information than any of the media could get because I have great sources. And I had a couple people bring me the entire sheriff's investigative file, which believe me, most of which was never released until my book, because it didn't come out in the trial. And they certainly didn't release it at any of the news uh, conferences. So hmm, I don't give up when people say you can't come in. (laughs) So Caitlin, why don't you uh, take us through the cast of characters, as it were? Okay, Rebecca Zahau is a 32-year-old, beautiful woman. She was an ophthalmic technician in um, the Phoenix Scottsdale area and she was working and this rich patient comes in named Jonah Shacknai. He was uh, at the time the owner and CEO of a big pharmaceutical corporation in the area and she, um, she was still married but she had been separated on and off with her husband for many years um, and they started dating. So he's older than her. Jonah's older than her by, you know, almost, I wouldn't say he wasn't twice her age, but it was, you know, a good, a good amount of years in there. Um, and he has three children. So two teenagers from his first marriage and one little boy named Max, who was six years old from his second marriage. So he's divorced. He's just brand new divorced, by the way. So this may even be his first date. I don't know, as a newly divorced guy. They go out, they start dating, um, and Jonah owns uh, several houses in Coronado, California, as a number of people do who live in the Arizona area because it's so hot in the summer. So he spends summers in this place um, in Coronado that he bought, and it cost him you know, almost $13 million. It's called the Spreckles Mansion. And it's this historic landmark here in San Diego County because it was built in 1908 by John D. Spreckles of the Spreckles Sugar family. John D. Spreckles actually bought up all this land on Coronado. And if you've any heard of the Hotel Del Coronado, um, it's also a landmark which has been featured in films like Some Like It Hot. 
So it's a very beautiful little small community, though. It's only like 24,000 people. Um, the, the worst crime there, the most common crime there really is like bicycle theft. So some people leave their doors open, unlocked. So anyway, they start dating, they start living together, and they spend summers in, in the mansion. So they're there in July of 2011, and it's a, it's a you know, nice, beautiful day. They're going to go to uh, the zoo and to the beach because Rebecca's 13-year-old sister is out visiting for a month, and she lives in Missouri normally with the rest of Rebecca's family. And so it's um, her little sister, who I've given a pseudonym to since she was a minor, um, and Max and Jonah and Rebecca are in the house. Um, Jonah goes to the gym and uh, Max and Arielle, the little sister, go upstairs. So Rebecca is in the bathroom downstairs on the first floor when she hears a crash and she comes out. Um, the dog is barking like crazy. She has a 14-month-old Weimaraner. And apparently this dog is very boisterous and is so big that it could knock a, an adult down. So um, she comes out and to her horror, she finds little Max lying on the floor. There's a, a broken chandelier, glass chandelier that was hanging on the ceiling on the second floor, uh, lying next to him and pieces of glass everywhere a soccer ball and a razor scooter and the dog is barking. Okay. So don't know what happened, but it looks like he fell. Okay. Um, and uh, he's not breathing and his heart is not beating. So Rebecca says to her sister, call 911. So she calls 911. And in the meantime, Rebecca later tells Jonah, she gave him some breaths trying to give him CPR because he was, you know, out. So, <clears throat> The paramedics get there, um, the police come, and it's the Coronado police who respond. Paramedics take Max to the hospital. Jonah tells Rebecca, you can't come to the hospital because I don't want there to be a scene because Rebecca does not get along with his ex-wife, Dina, who is Max's mother. So Rebecca's the only one in the house when this happens, and she loves this little boy like he's her own. And he and the little boy loves Rebecca. So, you know, the police end up taking her. She's on, she's actually in the back of a cruiser driving to the hospital when Jonah says don't come, but she's not turning back. So they go to the hospital. She stays in the parking lot, goes inside briefly. As she's getting back into the cruiser, she says to her little sister, Dina is going to kill me. So in other words, you know, she, Dina is going to be really angry. Right. So they go back to the mansion. Um, I'm going to speed this up now. So over the next couple days, the next day or so, she ends up sending her sister home. And Jonah's brother, Adam, flies out from Memphis. Now, he is a tugboat captain. And his longtime girlfriend is a nurse who says, you know, you need to go support your family. So he decides to come out. Um, Rebecca basically is just ferrying relatives and friends back and forth between the hospital and the airport and wherever they live and because she can't come in the hospital to visit Max, right? Okay. So basically, um, she and Adam and Jonah go to dinner. They take Jonah back to the hospital. Rebecca gives Jonah a long hug um, <clears throat> to say, you know, 
Dubai, whatever, um, for the night. And she takes Adam back to the mansion. So according to him, they come back and they're standing in the courtyard, which is in the rear of the house. So I just explain this a little bit. The, the layout of the property is there's this big mansion. And when I say mansion now, I don't want you to think about Hollywood mansions where they're all super beautiful and, you know, kept up. <laughs> this is an old house. So it needs a lot of work. The windows are all, you know, cracking. And so anyway, so when I say mansion, it's just, you know, it's a historic resource mansion. There's also a guest house in the back, which is a two-story um, structure. There's also a, a, a caretaker's cottage. And then there's another um, little apartment over the garage. So there's plenty of, lots of, lots of places where people can stay. So Adam stays in the guest house. This is his place to, when he comes and visits, I guess he stays there. So they talk in the courtyard, say goodnight. He thinks maybe she'll want to talk about Max or whatever, but she doesn't. She just, she goes into the main house. He goes into the guest house. He says he calls his girlfriend uh, to say goodnight, has an Ambien and goes to sleep. The next morning, uh, I should say one more thing. Um, Rebecca calls her sister her older sister who is picking up her younger sister at the airport back in Missouri to make sure they've connected. She says, I love you. Um, you know, I'll call mom and dad or whatever in the morning. Um, I need to get up early and go to the, you know, go to the hospital. So I guess she's ferrying, taking clothes, sandwiches. I don't know. So, um, and then at 10 to 1 AM, Jonah calls Rebecca and leaves her a, a voicemail. And it's a 62 second voicemail. And, and he told me that he was crying um, and basically reported to her what the doctor had said, which was the best scenario, Max is never gonna walk or talk again. Now we don't, no one's ever heard that voicemail because they couldn't access it and it was deleted. We don't know who deleted it, but there were no other voicemails on the phone. So the detectives believe that Rebecca deleted it, but they never, you know, fingerprinted the phone, took DNA, never were able to get a hold of, of that actual voicemail. Adam wakes up the next morning, and this is his story that he tells police. He wakes up around 6.15, and he's feeling kind of fitful and restless, so he pleasures himself to some porno on his phone, and he volunteers this to the police, and he takes a shower, comes outside, and finds Rebecca hanging naked bound and gagged now when i say bound i mean ankles are tied together uh wrists are are tied behind her back and she's got a blue t-shirt that's wrapped on top of the hanging rope on top of her hair okay um he calls 911 but he won't, decides to cut her down so because he thinks maybe he can save her. She, she's still alive. Goes into the kitchen, grabs the knife, pulls over a table. And you can hear this on the 911 tape as he's dragging this table over. It's a three-legged table because one of the legs is broken. You can hear it bouncing on the brick. Um, he stands up on the table and uh, reaches up and cuts the rope and then lays, gets off the table, lays her down on the grass in the courtyard. So by the time the police come and the paramedics, she's on the ground. So that's all they, so that's when I say 
he allegedly found her hanging. We, the police never saw her hanging. We don't, we don't know. So that's, and I'll leave it there because that's his version. There's a lot of debate. <laughs> Let's just put it mildly about what happened, you know, et cetera. But those are the facts of, in the timeline. So I should also say that Max was still alive at this time, but he did die of his injuries, his head injuries. He had bad head injuries um, a couple, three days later. He was declared brain dead. They donated his organs. So he wasn't, and then they, you know, they keep the body going to clean the organs when they do that. So Saturday was when he was declared, uh, officially declared brain dead. And this was um, Monday is the day that he fell and Wednesday is the day that she was found. So that's the timeline. So then after this um, <clears throat> discovery of Rebecca and then the subsequent uh, passing of Max, the, so close together, the various family members of different families are dealing with two funerals. Right. And um, the, the, um, the thing that I also left out, I should have mentioned, is when Adam called 911, he said, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house. So number one, he told police he was in the guest house <laughs> and Rebecca was in the main house. And um, you can hear him on the, on the tape because the, the dispatcher tells him to start doing compressions. And, he's, and she says, you can count out loud if you want. And he says, 27, 28, 29. And so he's been talking to her this whole time. Um, okay, so Rebecca is tied with this red ski rope, water, like a water ski rope, like you would pull an inflatable tube or whatever with them, which apparently is where it came from. So it was supposedly in the garage because um, there was a space where it had been and they could see where it had been. Um, and um, the bedroom where the her hanging rope was tethered, was anchored to the leg of a bed. Okay. So um, it's a guest bedroom. That's where her little sister had been staying, but that's, it was what, what Rebecca was using as her like painting room. She, she did watercolors and other kinds. She it was like fine art, you know, birds. She liked to paint nature. So, um, so the, the, the rope was tied in three separate pieces. Um, it used to be one piece, but it was three pieces. So one around her neck and one around her wrists and one around her feet. Um, so the, but the hanging rope to her neck was tethered to the leg of the bed. And then it went out the, out the door over into a little balcony where there was a, a like an iron railing, a decorative, you know, iron railing. And it went over the top of that and then down. So when the police got there and it was actually, some of the very same police who responded to the 911 call two days earlier. Um, and they um, looked through the house to see if they could find anybody. Uh, Cause it looked very suspicious when they got there and they immediately called the sheriff's department and who, who activated their homicide team. So they, it was suspicious enough that they sent the homicide team. Okay. So they found a steak knife, 
on the floor in the in that guest bedroom and then a larger chef's knife. Um, I guess there was some kind of dog's toy underneath the bed or nearby. Um, there were a couple paintbrushes and there was a tube of black paint. And on the door to the bedroom, there was a message that was written in big black block letters. She saved him. Can you save her? No punctuation. In the hallway to the bedroom, right outside the bedroom, they also found a towel with some dried blood on it and three drops of blood on the carpet, maybe several drops of blood. And there was no blood in the, that little guest bedroom. There was no bleeding wound that she had, but she was on her period. They found blood also in the master bathroom shower, um, which was across the other side of the house on a different floor. So I should mention that as well. Uh, and they, it was Rebecca's blood. Yes. Yeah. And they found her right. cell phone. I'm sorry. They also found her cell phone in that on the floor next to the knives. Um, just because you, like I said, you've seen the, uh, the, the house and the areas. The only thing that, I mean, there's a lot of things that jump out at me, but um, was that railing not strong enough to support the rope? In other words, why was it tied to the bed and then thrown over the balcony rail? Oh, that's an interesting question. No one's ever asked that. Um, Just to me, it seems if you're going to do huh. this thing with a complicated self-tying, the quickest way to is do it right at the railing and, and go. I don't understand why it was tied to the bed unless the railing would not support and she's afraid. I don't think that was an issue. I think it was like an iron railing. Um, I you know, I haven't actually been at the house, but just looking at pictures, I don't think that was an issue. That's an interesting question, though. Well, because what what the sheriff's department ultimately ruled that this was a suicide. Um, they said she felt guilty about what happened to Max and she felt responsible. They found some notes on her phone. So they were able to get into her phone. They just weren't able to access that voicemail. And they found some, you know, when this is kind of a a tool, you know, that some people use. If you're angry at somebody, you write a letter to them, but you never send it. There was a note like that. She was angry at Jonah. She was angry at Jonah because he, she felt like he was taking um, his kid's side. The teenagers were disrespectful to her, she felt. And, um, you know, he told her that he didn't want to have any more kids. And she was like, well, you know, I, I, am I giving everything up? Cause you know, it seems like she wanted to have one anyway. So these notes were on her phone. She said she wasn't sleeping. She was crying a lot. So the sheriff's department said, well, this shows that she was depressed and she, the relationship was in trouble and that's why she did it. The police pretty much um, in, in the beginning, you know, uh, you know, before the investigation's totally finished, we don't want to say anything. We won't come before the cameras, but they leaned horribly to, to, to close to her on the side of suicide. Would oh, there's all it? kinds of theories. <laughs> however, however, the night before, uh, Max's mother's Dina, her sister, Nina, 
who is a fraternal twin. So now they have similar builds, but different color hair. Um, she came over to the house the night before um, trying to talk to Rebecca. She wanted to know more information about what happened to Max. She didn't feel like Rebecca was answering her questions. She wanted to come inside and look at the whole setup and how did this happen so she could see it in her own mind. She texted Rebecca. I guess she tried to call her. Rebecca didn't respond. So she came over to the house. Now, I mentioned Jonah owned several houses in Coronado. One of the houses that he owned was um, just a few blocks away. And so that, that's where Dina would stay because they had 50-50 custody of Max. And, and Dina lived in uh, Paradise Valley where in, in the house that she used to share with Jonah the rest of the year. And then she came out in the summer just like Jonah and Rebecca did, but she was some blocks away. So Nina was staying in that house and Dina was at the hospital and she came over to the house. Now, there was a guy who was driving by on a bicycle who saw a woman at the door, fiddling around, looking kind of like it wasn't her house. And, you know, then he saw her going at the front door. Then he saw her go around to the back, down the driveway to the back courtyard. And then she, she he drove his bike off. So the next morning he, uh, you know, heard all the commotion because I don't know if there were news helicopters or whatever, I think flying over. And so he rode his bike back over there and saw the command center and the crime tape and, and, oh my God. So he told them what he saw. He said, I saw this woman outside this house at, you know, sometime between 10 and 20, 10, 20, because they went to Starbucks right after he has a receipt with the time on it. Um, and, but I looked online and um, I saw pictures of Dina Shacknai and I, I saw Dina Shacknai. It was a woman with dark hair. And so that caused a lot of uh, debate <laughs> because Nina said it was her and Dina said she was at the hospital. So anyway, that fueled um, in the Zahau's mind because there was a witness. Um, also, there was a neighbor who claimed that she heard somebody crying, a woman crying out for help at about 11.30 p.m. So these, these allegations and this information went into a civil lawsuit that there's a house filed against Dina and Nina and Adam Shacknai. They filed that in 2013. And they didn't have any information because the sheriff's department wasn't sharing information about in their investigation. So they basically just said, well, they conspired to kill Rebecca and, and strangled her and, and threw her over the side. If we want to go with suicide, how common is naked suicide by hanging? All right. So let, let's break this down a little bit. The sheriff's department was saying, oh, there's plenty of literature out there. The sheriff's actually said that. And I said, well, no, actually, I looked online and I, I looked up naked suicide and I found one journal article that said naked suicide. That's what it was titled. And you know what this article said? We know so little about naked suicide that there's almost nothing written about naked suicide because <laughs> it just don't happen that often. Um, but it's very unusual for a woman to hang herself uh, outside like that. Now, usually it's in public. People want to say in public. It wasn't in public because it's a private house, but it was outside. If And, and usually when people hang themselves, it's usually... Um, like a one or two foot fall. This was a nine foot fall. So this was a really unusual situation because 
nobody that worked on this case and nobody who testified that was brought in from the outside had ever heard of a case like this. So I'm not saying it's never happened, but nobody had ever heard of one or had never worked on one. So <laughs> it was very unusual. The, the point you bring up, because I've read in a couple of the stories that I've done of uh, uh, hangings, and, um, you know, it depends on, again, she didn't have a professional, you know, noose with the loops on it. She had a, a, a knot around her neck. I don't know if that would change anything in the positioning. You know, when you're doing a professional hanging, it goes in a certain spot to attempt to break the neck. But if she fell nine feet, in some of these other stories, the head comes off. Right, exactly. Okay, so... This is, and this is a very important point. Remember when I said that there are certain forensic questions that cannot be answered, things that don't make sense? This is one of them. So um, during the trial, they had um, the forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Wecht, who is a very, he comes in on very controversial cases. And he was like 88 years old when he testified because he's done so many of these autopsies and second autopsies. And he said during the trial, he thought she had been manu manually strangled, hit over the head four times, and then somebody else put her over the side of the railing because she, if she had done it herself, and there was another expert who testified right after him who talked about the physics of it. They both were, you know, there were, there were only fractures in the cartilages in her neck. There were not the serious types of impact injuries that you would see from falling that far, number one. And, um, and also if she were hit over the head, she could have been, um, you know, out, you know, partially unconscious. Um, but yeah, so she should have been probably either partially or completely decapitated. And she wasn't, she didn't have serious injuries in her neck. And there were also two ligature marks on her neck. Okay, so if you're hanging, why would you have two and not one? And when I say ligature, I mean like a bruised linear mark okay, from the rope. So that's why they, that was another reason they were saying, well, there's two, one probably from the strangling and one from the hanging. And the other thing I think forensically on that, on that case that does make a lot of, I mean, it's, it's very believable about us. That's what the first thing is I was reading the story. I thought, no. Why wouldn't people assume, I mean, you should, that she was strangled, choked or strangled, or, or you're not going to use drugs because no drugs were found, or at least you no know, sedatives. And then the rope goes on, and then she's lowered very slowly, or maybe at the last Or raised, point. or raised. Someone else brought up a theory about maybe she was raised because she had dirt on the soles of her feet. And one of the previous attorneys for the Zahaus, his theory was that she was in the garden and because there was dirt and dust on the balcony and and he said he thought it was more consistent with the dirt in the garden and that she was raised so that's that theory however however the dust on the balcony was you know dense enough that there were little imprints where they said there were her toe marks so if it was just her toes and there was only one big toe next to the railing. So how are you going to, she was like a hundred something pounds, very, you know, under 110. And she was five foot uh, four. How are you going to rest your weight on one toe, hop? Because that basically there was some space between these two sets of prints and only one big toe 
right next to the railing. How is she going to get herself over on one big toe? And there's like the bottoms of her feet. There was not, there were not like footprints that you could see like all the way. So I didn't look at her feet. I'm just going based on what people are saying, but these things are some of the questions that make me, you know, well, so I'm not a lividity expert, but that's what that's called. So the blood pools after you're dead because of gravity, because your heart stops beating. And there are a number of people who've said it seems to be in a horizontal way. And if she were hanging for hours, it should be in her feet only really. And it wasn't. So I don't know though, because I, you know, I wish they had talked about this at the trial, because like I said, I'm not, I'm not a forensic expert in this area, but if she was lying on her back for the, the entire day out in the sun. So I don't know how long it takes for that lividity pattern to settle like that. Um, it could have happened after the fact because she was left in that position on the grass all day in the sun, not covered either, by the way. So when did, so now, you know, we have the questions we're raising. So eventually the family is, is raising questions and the authorities are wearing, raising questions. When did they turn to, and did they turn to Adam first? Okay. So they interviewed Adam right away because he was there and he's the one who did the 911 call. Um, they interviewed him and then they let him go. And then they asked him to come back and do a polygraph that evening. And they asked for his shoes and they, and he gave him, gave him them his shoes. Um, and he, so he had no shoes and no credit cards because his wallet had been um, stolen the night before he left Memphis at the YMCA. So he had no shoes and no credit card. So um, he, and he volunteered and he agreed and, and gave a polygraph and he didn't have an attorney. He, um, the former DA, um, I talked to him, he was at the scene, he was photographed at the scene. So he's now a criminal defense attorney. He showed up at the scene on the other side of the crime tape, putting his arms around the detectives, talking to them like they're buddies, uh, because somebody had called him and said, hey, um, uh, Jonah's brother needs help. And he didn't, this is years later, I did interview him, but he, you know, he didn't, he said he wasn't asked to represent Jonah or Jonah wasn't the one who called him, but he needed to go over there. And so he was looking for Adam because he wanted to represent Adam. And then he called Adam during his polygraph and Adam didn't pick up the phone and didn't want to talk to him. So anyway, so he went without an attorney and the examiner said the test was inconclusive, but he decided that Adam was telling the truth. Now, all these years later, outside experts have looked at the same polygraph examination. And, you know, there's, I don't know if they're sound waves or what do you call them, but there's like, wait, you know, they looked at, they looked at the actual um, test and, and they said he was being deceptive. So there you go. The sheriff's department clears him as a suspect because he's never even, he, he's actually Nobody has ever declared a suspect in this case, because according to the sheriff's department, there is no crime. So I just want to be very clear about that. Um, he was a person of interest. And they basically decided he was telling the truth and they let him go. And nobody else was a suspect because they decided that she committed suicide. Now, I guess they waited to make that a definitive finding until the toxicology test came back. 
And Sheriff Gore said, told me that um, he was actually one of the ones who was holding out the longest in the department, but he wanted to see what the results said. And he said, once they came back and there were no alcohol or drugs in her body, that meant he, she had not been sedated. She had not been coerced. Um, and that, you know, they just decided it was a suicide. So seven weeks later, they declared it a suicide and Max's death, a tragic accident. Now to this day, Max's mother still thinks Max was killed, uh, that it was not at his own hand and it was not accidental. Well, she, she, she blamed Rebecca. Um, and she even, uh, sued Jonah in civil court and, after, you know, there's a very acrimonious uh, relationship between them. They had um, domestic violence reports while they were still married against each other. Very, you know, they did not get along. Um, so there's a lot of diff- contradictory stories about this. And basically, Jonah just thinks it was ridiculous that, that um, Dina would blame Rebecca. Um, Jonah, I think, thinks the dog was somehow involved and it was just, an, you know, it was an accident. Whatever happened, because they, they kept asking Rebecca what happened and she kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't see it. So Dina and Nina, the sisters, they didn't believe that. But then there becomes a civil uh, action against Adam brought by about, about against all three of them, Nina, Dina, and Adam initially. And then not until four years later did the Zahau's attorney, Keith Greer, dismiss Dina and Nina. And this is after settling, by the way, with Nina's insurance company. So that Nina's insurance company paid some amount of money to the Zahau's. And so then they ended up going into trial with just Adam, wrongful death, uh, battery, and the theft essentially of some clothing that she had was last seen wearing and photographed in. And it turned out that the clothing was in the closet. Um, so that had to be dismissed, but the battery and the wrongful death was upheld by the civil jury. Um, and they felt like it was a murder and they felt like Adam was responsible. Did you go to the civil trial? Yes, I was there every single day. I was the only journalist there every day. Now, you have pictures in the book, by the way, I will mention this several times and at the end and on my on my web, my website, the book is Death on Ocean Boulevard. And I'm speaking with Caitlin Rother, the um, investigator and the author of the book. Um, so there are pictures in the book, some of them background pictures of the of the folks, which I always, if you're listening out there, authors, please, I'm serious. Now we have Google. I need pictures of people on this. I need to know what really. I can't read this book without. I want Rebecca in my head. I want Adam. In my, you know. So anyway, so the regular nice shots of these people before horrible things happen. Um, the issue um, of of in the uh, the civil trial or what they this attorney did and he you know has to do what he has to do. Pictures of mannequins strung up naked mannequins covered in various, you know, judicious places uh, to show the jury stuff. And, and I'm sure it was necessary, but what did you, what, how did that hit you or the jurors? Well, okay. So let's back up a second. So there was one mannequin, just one, and it was actually a sex doll. It, it was literally a sex doll that 
was made to look like Rebecca. So this, this mannequin was very lifelike looking, long black hair, uh, her fingernails and toenails were different colors, same colors as noted in the autopsy report. Many of the same injuries that were noted in the autopsy report were replicated on the body. So there was, for example, and when I say injuries, markings, I should say. So like there was a splash of blood um, on her inner thigh, for example. There was blood on her toes. I don't remember if that was on the mannequin, but I remember the report said that. Um, the marks on her neck and et cetera. But the, I think the, so the defense did not want this in the, allowed in the trial. They fought before the trial. They fought several times during the trial. And um, subsequently, the judge allowed the Zahau's attorney to use the mannequin um, during the rope uh, forensic, um, the testimony about how the ropes were tied and he, the defense's expert did a whole demonstration of how he thought the ropes had been tied by someone else, not Rebecca, and said so they were very complicated. And I was just like, wow. But they had to shroud the mannequin and only let one leg be exposed while he was tying the ropes around the feet or around the wrists. All the rest of the body, except for the arms, were exposed. So during the, most of the trial, you, it looked like a body, but it was covered in a sheet. But Keith Greer fought and he won the right to bring it out during his closing argument to show he had him strung up. And there was a, a blue surgical gown and then there was the sheet. So he removes the sheet and then he removes the surgical gown. And then there's this naked mannequin. You cannot possibly not imagine that that's her. So I think it was more for the dramatic effect. <laughs> but he said he needed to show that Adam didn't really need to stand on the table because she was hanging low enough that he could have just reached up and cut her down without the table. He did the whole thing with the table on the 911 tape to document the whole thing for the police as, to, as his narrative. That was what he was trying to show. And Jonah Shack and I was sitting in front of me in the courtroom when they pulled the shroud off the mannequin. And I remember I gasped out loud because it was like, it was shocking. It, it was like, oh my God. It, you, Cause you had, you could not imagine. You could not not imagine that that was what she looked like. So it was very, I think it was very persuasive and dramatic. But it was, it, you know, Jonah was very upset about it and told me that he felt it was incredibly insensitive and disrespectful, you know. So I bring it up and I, and I do want people to, because we are describing this and I, I hope you buy the book, ladies and gentlemen, go out and run and get the book because the, the pictures, I mean, it's the mannequin. I, I, I understand that, but it there, and I'm not trying to correct, but there are two um, uh, versions, if you will. This one is the, uh, the not guy, I'm assuming. Right, uh, where the mannequin's on its stomach and and showing how right. how you can tie behind this. One That's the defense's knock guy. Then there was also a, another knock guy who said, "Oh, these are really simple, really simple knots," and and the Zahau's uh, attorney said, and he you know did some kind of demonstration too, and made it look really simple. And then Keith Greer goes, uh, "Did you practice that before the trial?" He goes, "Yeah." How many times? Oh, I don't know, fifty or sixty. 
So apparently not so simple. Now, the other picture which I find more disturbing is this one here. Right, and that's the one I was talking about. Oh, okay. And yeah, so, when I gasped. Because... I would gasp at that, whether it's just or not. You've got a mannequin that looks exactly like a human. Uh, I don't, you know, Rebecca. But, and and with the head in a noose hanging. Yep, yep. It's, it's suspended. Yep. And and the, it, I'm assuming that's one of the attorneys is showing how the, the rope is going to be cut. That's Keith so Scrooge as a house like attorney, right? It looks like you're the executioner now cutting down the body. I mean, that oh, was brutal. It was just brutal. That, that morning, Keith Greer called me into a conference room right off the courtroom and was asking me, what do you think? Should I, should I use this? Should I use the mannequin? And I was like, I, I, I'm covering this case. I can't answer it. I said, it's very dramatic. I said, I can't really answer that, but it's very dramatic. That's what I said. And then I left. It was very uncomfortable being put in that position. And I don't blame you. So the jury found for the plaintiffs, and as these things go, Adam Shacknai wanted to appeal, but as you point out, that got muddied because of an insurance company? Well, they were going to appeal, um, but Adam's insurance company decided to settle with the Zahaus against his wishes, by the way for $600,000. So they had initially filed the lawsuit asking for 10 million. There was some negotiation to try to reach a settlement, but neither Adam nor the Zahaus wanted to settle. Like the attorneys were trying to settle, but, and that's in the book too, but. Because, so, because basically that cuts out Adam's um, goal, which was to try to get off on appeal, right? To get this, because he says his life's been ruined. He's been his reputation as, you know, he's now a murderer and a sexual deviant because we didn't talk about this, but part of the uh, plaintiff's scenario for how this happened was that they say that there, that steak knife that I mentioned that was on, found on the carpet in the guest bedroom, that he assaulted her with that, the handle of that, because there was some red and whitish markings on the handle and because she was having her period and there was no other bleeding wound that they say, you know, and, and it was Rebecca's blood that he must've assaulted her with that. According to the Zahaus, there was a confrontation in the hallway. So uh, Keith Greer came up with the scenario that basically Adam came into the house, watched her, through the glass walls of the shower, watch as she was taking a shower because the other blood was in the shower. We know she was in there. Uh, she's got a towel on. Somehow she gets to the other end of the house downstairs. Um, there's a confrontation where those drops of blood are dripping in that hallway outside the bedroom. They say, oh, she, there was a, and then he grabbed her, hit her over the head, whatever she, and that's when she was calling out for help. And that's why the neighbor heard it. And then he um, knocked her out, tied her up. She came to, she took the chef knife, the chef's knife. And apparently there's fingerprint, there's a fingerprint pattern, her fingerprints on the blade of that chef's knife in a way that would make it facing out and that she was trying to free herself, even though there's no cut marks on the rope. That, that's their scenario. And then, he somehow 
you know, got her over the edge of the railing. In the the suicide note, that is kind of cryptic and and whatever. Was he sort of intelligent enough, or or you know he came up with this way to to make it look like helter skelter or something by writing this this very cryptic message? Uh, nobody's really talking about the note on the door, other than in the trial anyway. Other than the handwriting or writing expert that the the Zahaus called. And the, the defense fought almost all day long at these hearings outside the jury's presence to keep his testimony out of the trial. But ultimately he said, and this is the standard in, in civil court, it was more likely Adam's writing than Rebecca's. More likely based on the A's and the M's. But they didn't really talk about um, Nobody really wants, to, everybody wants to theorize outside of the trial, but the sheriff's department doesn't want to talk about what this note really means because they can't say, because it doesn't really fit. It's who writes a suicide note in the third person and what does it mean, right? And so I think this, if we, if we knew who wrote that note, I think we would be able to solve this case, but they can't really prove it. I mean, uh, Rebecca's, uh, Fingerprint was found on the cap of the tube, but no usable prints were found on the body of the tube. And not so not Adams. I, I should also mention Adams DNA and fingerprints were not found anywhere in that bedroom or on any item at all, including the knife that he said he used to cut her down. This is not over, as you say, the, the parents of parent or is one of the parents dead of Rebecca? Rebecca's father has since died, yes. So Rebecca's um, mother is had her her name is on some of these documents, but I think it's really the sister, her, her older sister and her older sister's husband, Doug, who was a former police officer, by the way. Um, they've been, um, they've now, uh, the Zahau family has now sued the sheriff's department trying to get records. They say the investigation was flawed um, and they've made all kinds of allegations about the things that the sheriff's department didn't do should have done and yeah. they want and they want to um, hold them accountable and get them to free up more investigative or other kinds of records frankly i don't i don't see them getting that because i've been a reporter here in this town for a long time those records are generally protected so i think any judge that would allow that would be setting a precedent and i'm not saying i don't agree that they should get those records i'm just saying i don't I've been told no, I don't know how many times <laughs> in this county trying to get records. Um, and, and because they say it's not a crime, um, and even though they've closed the investigation, so why not release records? I mean, I'd I'm, I'm waiting to hear why the sheriff's department won't release it um, and what the judge will say, because I think, you know, I would like to see this case reopened and really fully examined more just because there are these unanswered questions, because there are some areas where they could, maybe too late, though, there are some of these things that we'll never know. You're, you're on the road with the book. 
uh, doing podcasts like this, uh, getting yes. out there. I follow you on my on Facebook. People can find you on Facebook and follow what you're doing with the book. Are you working on anything that you can tell anybody about at this point? A new new project. I'm working on a crime novel because during COVID, I had another book project that I was doing, but it got contract got canceled because of COVID. So I, I'm now um, at, in the editing stage, self-editing stage of a sequel to my first and only novel, Naked Addiction. So this is the next one in the series. Um, I'm also looking at some other cases, um, including the McStay case, which is a family of four that with two little boys, three and four years old, um, went mysteriously missing, same sheriff's department, including one of the same detectives, in fact. Um, their bodies were found three years later in two shallow graves out in the desert, but it was a missing persons case for three years. They said there was no foul play, blah, blah, blah. So I'm still, I'm looking into that, but it's been um, difficult with the courthouses all closed. And I've just only recently been fully vaccinated. So I'm trying to promote the book and uh, been chipping away at that one. Great. And I've got some other stuff on the back. Uh, so uh, give us your website. It's CaitlinRother.com. I have a, a virtual tour calendar that is on my blog where you can find links to all kinds of podcasts, TV interviews, news articles, columns, blogs, um, and virtual events that I've spoken at length about this case and answered a bunch of different questions from the audience. There's links on the tour calendar. And if you want a signed copy of the book, um, you can... You can go there directly. There's a link on where to get a, an autographed copy online if you're out of state and get it shipped to you. Um, or you can contact me and I can send you that link uh, at CaitlinRother.com. My email is, is on the website as well. Well, we want to go. Get, we want to get, let you go so you get your teeth clean. Okay, and thank I wanna, you. <laughs> I want to thank you for a wonderful hour. I know. Oh, we thank you. All not that we were going to try and talk not that long, aside from uh, your schedule, but also keeping your voice uh, active for your your. I'm supposed your... to go to a singing rehearsal this afternoon too, so I gotta you know drink a bunch of water and get going. <laughs> so once again, I want to thank Caitlin Rother, the book Death on Ocean Boulevard, available Amazon. I got mine, Barnes and Noble. Soon it will be in libraries, I am sure. And so you can get it for free. But again, thank you so much for joining me, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Episode 50 of Murder Most Foul. How many have you listened to? If you enjoyed today's segment, if you enjoy the program, I hope you'll tell your friends. It can be downloaded from all the popular podcast platforms, or you can link to it on my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There you can leave me an email with comments or suggestions. So until next time, Stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.